Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Piki mai kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. The big upheaval of 2016 was, of course, the magnitude 7.8 Kaikoura earthquake that struck the northeastern coast of the South Island in the early hours of the 14th of November. The original event, which involved at least nine faults, has been followed by more than 9,000 aftershocks. Affected residents are still grappling with the changes to their lives, while the natural world has also been coming to terms with a new reality. And despite the travel difficulties, many scientists from a range of disciplines have been making their way to the quake zone to measure, record and try and understand what happened then and what has been happening since. The earthquake was groundbreaking, excuse the pun, in many ways, but one of the most striking was the coastal uplift. 120 kilometres of coastline was shunted up out of the ocean by between 1 to 6 metres. There were dramatic news reports of thousands of stranded power rescued and returned to the sea south of Kaikoura. North of Kaikoura, crayfish, power and bull kelp weren't so fortunate. The photos and videos doing the rounds are stunning. But what about Kaikoura itself? The peninsula there was uplifted by a metre, and when David Scheel from the University of Canterbury offered to show me the consequences of that on the local marine life, I didn't take much persuading. David knows this area intimately. He and his students have been studying the seaweeds and invertebrates of the intertidal zone that, but between high and low tides, in great detail for 25 years. So exactly one month after the quake, we joined the northbound convoy early one morning and several hours later, at low tide, we were by the sea. So we've made it in for, through the inland route. It's a beautiful day here and the first stop on our post-earthquake foreshore tour and there's been a lot of exclaiming going on in the car as we drive along. Yeah, the exclaiming has to do with the fact that most of the reef that we're looking at was uh, subtidal, permanent subtidal, a few weeks ago and when you look at it now there's just massive amounts of rock sticking up that we've never seen before except when we're diving along the coast here. So we're going around the peninsula towards the seal colony so we're still on the uh, Kaikoura Bay side of the peninsula and this reef system here goes for about a kilometre, one and a half kilometres, and it is formerly one of the largest intertidal algal beds in the country. And you can see the dark brown all along here, which is uh, now dead and dying algae. It's quite extensive, and it runs right along the coast here. It doesn't smell as bad as I thought it was going to smell, but I take it that it's improving. Uh, well, what's happening now is that this reef has been baking in the sun for about two weeks now, and a lot of the things that were initially dead are so desiccated now they're losing some of their smell. OK, well, let's walk a transect out over the reef. So start with where we are now. So we've just come out onto the coast margin here, and we're at the former high tide line, and you can see all Lots this desiccated algae, the drift algae in here, and all these little brown pebbles are this uh, thing called Neptune's necklace, or homosara, which is the iconic 
large algal species of the intertidal zones throughout New Zealand and uh, southeastern Australia. And as we walk down, we're now heading off of the gravel into a, sort of a sandy beach, and we're approaching probably a meter by elevation below the high tide, the former high tide line. What we see here is the high tide line from uh, immediately the week after the earthquake, and it's a bit squishier. Um, it still gets infused with a bit of water that can hit these tidal cracks, but what you see is just this great mix of seaweeds, all sorts of them. And so what we're doing is walking across the high intertidal zone, and typically this would be filled with all sorts of grazing snails, particularly limpets and uh, various other things that feed on microalgae, and you'll be hard-pressed to find any live ones. This uh, shore was littered with dead shells a week ago, and the seagulls were picking over it pretty intensively. So now what we're seeing is the edges of these tidal cracks, and this is all seagrass, and you can see that the seagrass blades themselves are dead and the mud beneath it is fairly uh, anoxic. I'll just uh, take this uh, caliper so I don't have to stick my hand into it. And uh, what you see is... Oh, you're digging away all black Yeah, black it's just it's all mud. rotting material. The roots are dead and uh, and it's quite unpleasant to smell because it's, uh, you know, it's going anoxic. And you can see in the tide pools now the tide is out What's happened is that a lot of the tannins are le leaching out of the seaweeds, and you'll find that this will become an uh, anaerobic mess as uh, microbial activity takes over at uh, low tide as the, as the pools sit here in the sun. And so you'll see a lot of uh, red coloration and white coloration and scum floating on the surface in an hour or two. So not the kind of rock pools you'd want to bring your kids down to play in? Uh, <laughs> not at the moment. Not if you like them, put it that way. <laughs> What's happened in these bigger tide pools like the one we're standing next to is that the oxygen levels go so low that they basically don't sustain life. And so a lot of these things crawl out and somewhat in desperation, I guess, and, and they don't have the ability to crawl away, so they stay there and become comatose. So along all of these reefs of the South Island, uh, this part of the South Island that was uplifted, we see um, just thousands upon thousands of these dead uh, organisms now. One of the reasons we've worked on this reef is because it is one of the more, most diverse reefs in New Zealand in terms of the number of species that you find here. And a lot of that is because of this Neptune's necklace. So what it does is it holds moisture, and it sort of is so thick. It was up to about 6 uh, kilograms per square meter, uh, and so it was about oh, 30 or 40 centimeters tall, and then it would flop over things at low tide and protect them from the sun and wind and that sort of thing. So a lot of species could live on them, in them, among them, and so on. And so we've recorded over 200 species from this reef alone over the years that uh, we've been doing monitoring and experiments here, which is now up to about 25. Maybe 50 student theses have used this reef as part of their studies and so on. So we know a lot about this reef. So what we're seeing here, though, is all these white patches uh, between the dead homosara plants. And those white patches are two things, one of which is uh, bare space, which is now fully exposed and baking in the sun. And the other are these tough calcareous algae called corallines. And what you see here is they've bleached white. And a lot of that will now, over a period of two or three months, go back to bare space. 
And so what we think we're seeing here is just the demise of just about everything on the reef as the protection of the canopy of Harmasara goes back. All this stuff gets exposed. So you're really hard-pressed to find species alive underneath this canopy now because it's not only dead, but it's releasing all sorts of noxious compounds as it, as it dies off. The reason I am fond of this area is because the first experiment I ever did on an intertidal reef platform is right here. And part of it was trying to understand what the consequences of the loss of canopy species would be on diversity, on recovery dynamics, and so on. And what we found is that even when in these lush algal beds, these formerly lush algal beds, even surrounded by highly reproductive seaweeds, these patches would take uh, six to eight years to recover uh, the canopy species and, uh, and having the development of the full community beneath them. So we've been concerned about people pressure on these reefs, but of course we were uh, not really geared into the fact that the whole reef may actually lift up and everything die. So this area here is sort of interesting, and the reason it's interesting is because it's sort of raised a bit. It's got almost nothing on it, except it had a lot of invertebrates, primarily a whole suite of limpets and some of this coralline algae in the cracks. And the interesting thing about this, or one of the interesting things, is if you sort of get a theodolite on this, this center of this platform, filled with limpets, is about 20 centimeters higher than that reef uh, a couple meters away that's covered with seaweeds. So when we heard that the tidal levels changed here, we were a bit concerned because I knew that 20 or 30 centimeters would make a big difference to the survival of this. So what you see here is just bare rock. You'll be hard-pressed to find a limpet here. There were about, I think we counted about 500 limpets here last week, all of them dead, and I can't even see one now. So they've clearly been washed away. So this will probably be mostly high and dry rock in the future. So as we walk out over the reef, there's it seems, feels like acres and acres of dead Neptune's necklace. Where we are now would only come out of the water at the lowest of low tides before. All right, so we are now at what would have been right on the subtital margin, and my guess is that some of this stuff will survive. A lot of these seaweeds take a, take a hit and then have an ability to sort of, they'll lose bits of them, but they can regrow. And so what we'll probably see here is that these plants, a lot of these will survive, but they'll be smaller in the future, and then we'll see how they, see how they recover as they adjust to their new situation, shall we say. But behind us, all of that reef that we just walked across, what's your uh, future casting for that? <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. The seaweed is certainly all dead, uh, so what it's replaced with remains to be seen. We expect that the, in the lower margins here there'll probably be a, blooms of ephemeral things like sea lettuce and you know, some of the species that get into heavily disturbed places. But this mudstone is really difficult uh, platform for a lot of species to settle onto. So, you know, whether invertebrates such as barnacles and limpets and that settle on them remains to be seen. But my prognosis is, such as it is, is that almost everything that we're looking at towards the upper shore will die off in the next month or two. Probably one big storm and most of that stuff will disappear. Oh, I see limpets. You do. Here we have some limpets on this little higher um, bear platform, and they're hanging in there. They're doing okay. 
and uh, you know the tide line, the high tide line is over this area. So these guys are getting enough water to stay alive. Now, what's this longer, strappy, dead weed in front of us? All right, now we're going into the permanent subtidal zone. Need to point out we're still high and dry above the water. <laughs> we are still high and dry above the water. So this edge here that we're standing on is the edge of the former Hormisara zone. This is the lowest we could ever work because this tidal crack that has virtually no water in it was permanently subtidal. And uh, so this strappy algae here is a thing called Carpophyllum meshlecarpum, and it's a strappy thing. It's, again, a New Zealand native, and it occurs right around the coast, and you can hear the sort of crackly bits as you pick it up. This is all dead, and uh, this would very rarely be exposed at low tide at all. So you can tell right here is where the former absolute low tide margin was in this area of the reef. And as you can see, there's quite a bit of reef left uh, sitting high and dry in front of us towards the sea. Sean, you've been up here since the earthquake. How's it changed? Well, I was able to get up to the Waipapa area just five days after the quake, so things were looking still pretty fresh, and the algae was still pigmented. Um, the smell wasn't too bad yet, um, but you could see you know, things were starting to bleach out and discolor, and the invertebrates were starting to get weak and peel off the rocks and things like that. Now, coming back, you can see sort of a gradual decline the holdfasts from the kelps are starting to fall off the rock, and um, everything's black now. And you know, you see the the coralline, the crustose coralline algae, which was once pink, is now all white. So the whole reef takes on sort of a white, whitish, ghostly look. So yeah, you can definitely see a gradual decline in the overall health of the ecosystem. So you've been studying incremental change over the last 25, 30 years, and now you have this sudden tipping point, this moment in time. I think the recovery dynamics here is going to be really interesting, and there's some serious questions. So, for example, for the local population in particular, that has a huge reliance on the sea, not only for tourism and for uh, power and uh, crayfish, um, it's really important to understand the dynamics of recovery of these reef systems. These are highly attractive uh, systems, and if you look over this reef, for example, all this algae, they're primary producers, like all plants. They, they basically convert sunlight into carbon that flows through the ecosystem for detritus. A lot of fish and crayfish and power feed on them, which is why so many of them were exposed in that massive sudden uplift up the coast. There's thousands upon thousands of crayfish and power have been exposed. There were butterfish that are algal feeders up stranded on the reef. So these things popped out of the water. This reef popped out of the water probably in a minute or two and these things were coming in to feed on an incoming tide and were left high and dry. And what that illustrates is how these algal beds are part of the uh, food chain of the nearshore waters and why they're so important. If you think about uh, this reef system out there the question is, will things resort themselves? And the answer is, of course they will. Uh, it's nature. They'll find something to settle on and go ahead. But we don't actually know how much reef is left out there because a lot of this coast around these parts and up further up north towards Cape Campbell are uh, gravel beds and sand beds, and the reef, uh, rocky reef can be patchy. So there's two sorts of habitats. One is the physical habitat of the rocky reef and the second part is the biogenic or biological habitat which is all these seaweeds that support the life and so to me any thoughts of uh, restoration or 
anything that may involve reseeding of these areas, you better get the habitats, both of them right, or um, they're not going to be very successful. So when you see these power here, some of them uh, further down the coast uh, at Goose Bay could be relocated because we know there's reef there. But in some of these areas here, you can see that there's very little reef out through some east parts. So in terms of recovery dynamics, we'll have a lot to do in the next while. In terms of long-term monitoring sites, we can tell you they're going to be different. It's amazing. Well, I've never seen anything like it. That's well, I think you'd be hard-pushed to see something like this in a single lifetime. Yeah, and, you know, when you think about some of the other earthquake stuff we've seen, like in the Christchurch estuary where the driving factor there from the earthquakes in Christchurch was the liquefaction that pushed up through the estuary floor, which was filled with organic-rich sediments. And ultimately, in addition to uh, the moving the sewage uh, effluent offshore, what the sediments did is formed a cap over a lot of the organic-rich sediments, so it added to the recovery of the sort of health, if you like, of that estuary. Then you see something like this. This is massive upheaval over about 120 kilometers of coastline, and virtually overnight everything becomes dead and dying. And it's just been a, such a major thing. I've never. There's very little stuff in the scientific literature that's ever been recorded of this magnitude. Uh, so this is a, a is a really novel event. The water's looking a bit tannin-filled but not too bad? It's not too bad. It is a bit tannin-filled. And you also have to remember that the water around this part of the coastline often has a lot of sediment in it. So uh, what you uh, it, when you see murky water or slightly um, occluded water, it's not necessarily chemicals coming off. But I will say uh, in the week or two after the earthquakes, uh, the, the water on the edges of these reefs was absolutely toxic. We uh, swam some transects out from, uh, uh, recording dissolved oxygen and in the near shore zone in many of these areas the levels were so low that they would not sustain life so a lot of this is cleaned up with tidal flow and that over the last couple of weeks and as uh, the seaweed dies they release less and less of these compounds and so this water actually looks pretty good to me now so we'll just leave the area where once we would have been swimming and make our way back across the reef so I'm just going to do a little transect of my own, a little sound transect across the reef as we go. So first of all, here is what it used to sound like probably, so water obviously, and then soft, soft flexible weed. So that's something in a tidal crack, that's, that's Hormosaira, the Neptune's necklace. some Hormosaira Neptune's necklace that's out on the rocks it's a bit dry on the top but still pretty soft and flexible underneath and here's some quite dead Hormosaira still, still damp but very definitely dead here's some of the strapia seaweed so this one is dead, it's been cast ashore but it's still a bit flexible and brown very definitely dead and drying weed 
And this is the sound of a crispy reef. Everything's either white or black, and it's all dead. And here's a special bonus stop on the sound tour of the reefs out at the seal colony. At the end, lots of dying or dead bull kelp. And that is sounding a bit like it's quite crispy. A bit leathery. So we're walking down across this platform uh, to the low tide mark now. And you can see this bull kelp, um, Dervilia. Um, and this is a, a major species of the low shore of the exposed part of southern New Zealand. And uh, you can see two species of it. So the one with the long strappy blades sort of higher up is uh, Dervilia antarctica. And the one lower down that has little side branches on it is Dervilia wallana. And most of the stuff we're looking at now, that golden brown stuff that's dead and probably a meter out of the water right now at low tide is permanent subtidal. So that would typically be at minus two meters depth. And you can see that it's just not doing very well. So the tide's going over it at high tide, but it's uh, exposed for several hours at low tide. It just has no resistance to the uh, desiccation from the sun. So what we're seeing now is just this vast devastation of this elbow zone right throughout here and how far out the tide is from uh, where it would normally be. You can see it with the bleached rocks again with all this coralline algae. As you look down the coast, uh, what you see is all this dead uh, Dervilia at the former low tide mark. So what probably is going to happen is that they'll hopefully just redistribute and just move a bit lower on the rocks with time. Now we're wandering around the shoreline on the peninsula and we have found the Limpet Cemetery. We have... There are thousands of limpet shells in this area in front of us. It's probably no more than about 10 square meters, and it's just absolutely filled with uh, very large, very dead limpets. It's sort of the ghost of limpets past here, really. Most of these are about 50, uh, 30 to 50 millimeters long, so they're quite large and probably quite old. And you can just see, as far as you can see in this area here, there's just limpet shells. So we're standing about 30 meters from the cliff here and typically the tide would roll over this area so this vast area of many many hectares that were co that was covered with limpets is now uh, now going to probably to be permanently bare and in front of us is a very busy thriving red-billed gull colony and here I am approaching the red-billed gull colony on the peninsula and I'm pretty sure that Jim and Deborah Mills are here studying the chicks. Now, I haven't seen them for about four years. So check online for a link to the story I did with them a few years ago. And in the meantime, I'll see if I can get their attention. They're busy trying to catch chicks and ban them. Jim, Deborah, lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you as well. That's awesome. great, Alison. How have your gulls been doing post-earthquake? They survived the earthquake and also the small tsunami that came that didn't get up into the colony. So they've survived pretty well. 
Now, how were the birds doing before the earthquake? What kind of a season was it? It was very bad. The birds normally feed on euphorsids, and they need a regular supply of euphorsids to be successful breeders. What happened was that prior to the earthquake, there was hardly any euphorsids being regurgitated by the birds. They were mainly eating earthworms and fish larvae. And at that time, the, the eggs were very small, and the... The chicks weren't doing very well, they're very thin. And about a week after the earthquake, all of a sudden the birds started to feed in the intertidal zone on the limpets, which were all dying or or dead. And uh, there was a big resurgence and the birds started to do very well. So they were feeding for about three weeks on on the limpets that were in the intertidal zone dying or dead. All they had to do was go along and tap them and they would turn upside down and they were doing very well. Yeah, the chicks seem to be much more vibrant and heavier, and they're surviving much better than they were before, and we've had a resurgence of egg laying, and the eggs are actually larger than they were before the earthquake. So it's exciting. Normally the, the droppings on the colony are either red from the euphorsids or pink, but the, all of the colony was covered in black, black droppings from the eating the, the limpets. But just in the last two days, we've seen a resurgence of krill, and yeah. the birds are feeding on krill again, so it could turn out to be a reasonably good season for them. Yeah. So overall, how are the gulls here doing? Are they thriving still along this coast? Uh, no, they're not. They've declined by about 51%, and uh, they haven't really come back. Uh, one of the big problems is cats, and we've got a cat this year we can't catch. It cleaned out a white-fronted tern colony. They've cleaned that out now. They just It's just starting to get uh, involved with the gull colony now. Yeah, and unfortunately with the uplift, the colonies aren't cut off by the tides anymore. So actually cats have access 24 hours a day. So at night, whether it's low tide or high tide, they can get out there. Well, that's no good, but I gather that that better access is also quite useful for you as biologists. It's a lot easier for us to get out here when we don't have to worry about tides stopping us. That's right. Well, I know you've got a lot of work to do, so lovely to see you, and may all your chicks fledge. Thanks a lot, Alison. It's great to see (laughs) you again. A big thanks to marine biologist David Scheel, recent recipient of the University of Canterbury Research Medal. Thanks too to marine ecology technician Sean Garrity and to Redbill Gull researchers Jim and Deborah Mills. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast and you can find more stories on our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Ka kite Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.